Hello, welcome back to So What Does Judaism Say About? Where we take Jewish topics, Jewish ideas, and discuss them together. I'm Rabbi Rick Fox, together here with Rabbi Mayer Beer. Today, we're going to discuss what does Judaism have to say about another bizarre piece of the Talmud. How are you doing, Rabbi Beer? Fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. I'm excited to hear this piece. I heard a little bit about it, you know, backstage, and I'm excited to get through this. Uh, let's just jump right in. All right, I'll share the passage with you. This is from a Medrash Rabbah. This is the same era as the Mishnah, so this is early stages of the Talmud. We get a story with Rabbi Shimon, the son of Chalafta, Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta. It's a Friday before Shabbat is about to start, and he has nothing to eat. He's destitute. So he goes outside the city, and he prays, and heaven gives him a, an Evan Tova, some sort of valuable or precious stone. He goes, he sells it, he has his, you know, he's got a bunch of money now, and he buys great takeout for Shabbat. All the, all the, all the trappings. Amongst, does he spend it all, or he, amongst other things that he would... Fill in the details as you'd like. Sure, I, don't, sure. I don't know. But presumably he got a big, uh, he, you know, he didn't just get 200 bucks. Right, with inflation, Evan Tovas are probably good things to have. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Valuable commodities to get you through rough economic times. So he comes home, you know, loaded with food, and his wife asks him, you know, where'd you get this food from? So he's like, oh, you know, heaven, heaven sent it. She's like, I'm not eating until you tell me where you got it from. So he tells the story. You know, he went, he prayed, and he got this miraculous precious stone sent from heaven. So he did pray for help. He prayed for help, and he wasn't answered with a job offer or some sort of normative way of making money. It was a, mirac- it was a miracle. It's a, it's a miraculous way of getting something valuable. Mm-hmm. And his wife says, I'm not eating, I'm not eating any of this. You've got to give it back. So he says, why? She tells him, I don't want your table, quote-unquote, in the world to come to be empty and others to be full. I mean, mm. this is somehow coming out of your, I don't know, heavenly reward, so to speak. Your payback in the next world. Whatever, something like that. Whatever that means. Yeah. So he says, uh, okay, let's go to Rabbi Huda Hanasi, Rabbi Huda the prince. Rabbi Huda Hanasi was one of the greatest, if not the greatest scholar of his era, was the compiler of the Mishnah. So, you know, he says, let's, let's go and see what he has to say. So they go. And he says that, you know, if anything's going to be missing from your portion, you can take it on my portion. Essentially saying that I'll... He tells the wife. Tells the wife, I'll... Exactly. Relax. If there's, if there's any ding in heaven, it's on me. I'm, yeah. covering, I'm covering the I'll bill. take the hit for this one. Right. It's amazing that Rabbi Huda Nasi says that because Rabbi Huda Nasi was, I believe, known to be one of the wealthiest people of the time as well. Yeah. It's odd that he wouldn't just compensate them financially. Maybe he offered they didn't want. I we don't have all There's the details. There's a backstory yeah. there that needs. Is, some these, are, these are good questions, right. but just the parts of the conversations which we have are right. interesting enough, and we'll, we'll focus on those. But these are all good points. So she says, "No, it doesn't work like that." He, she quotes a verse in Psalms. I'm sorry, a verse in um, in Kohelas, Ecclesiastes King from King, King Solomon. Solomon. The verse says. When a per, a kiholicha adam el base olamo, a person will go to his world. It doesn't say to a general world, but each person is an individual portion, and you can't like hand over parts of your quote unquote heavenly possessions to other people. So Rebbe agrees with her, and then they return the food. 
get the precious gem back, pray to heaven and heaven how takes do you the return, gem back. How do you, what is this, Amazon? How do you, there was, there was a locker at 37th and Rebbe Yehuda Nasi's house. How did they get, how they get the stone back to heaven? We don't have details. What the measures <laughs> does end off with, it was a greater miracle that heaven took it back than heaven gave it in the first place. It says that? Yes. Wow. So this is a lot of unusual details in the story. Wow. As you are clearly getting to, there's a lot to pick apart in the story. But we'll focus on one part of the story. And that is, what is the conversation between Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and Shemun Khalafta's wife? Right. We don't have her name. It's not right. listed. Right. So we have this woman who's getting into this theological debate with the greatest scholar of the time. And seemingly, Rabbi Hanasi makes an error in his description of how heavenly reward works. And she's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You can't just hand over like your heavenly assets. And he just agrees with her. And he like, also quotes a passage from Ecclesiastes. She, she quotes this passage. She quotes a passage that he knows. Correct. He know, he's learned right. that passage before. Presumably. Maybe, maybe he didn't have the Rashi, but he knew that passage. So it's interesting. The whole thing is interesting. Yeah. It, it's just like a, it, you know, there's a there's hundred points of the story that can be taken apart, but I think that's like the focus point. Like, what's that debate? So just for starters, and this is an assumption that I took when I understood this. If a person prays for financial success, and then the next day they get a job interview, and then that job interview pans out and they get the position, you don't think you have to assume that it's coming out of your heavenly portion. Like you prayed for it and it came, like it's fine. And, and it also came through a more I think natural it, means. Exactly, because there was a miracle that gave them this gift. So his wife took it as like, this is not the natural way that we're supposed to be living. Like this is like some sort of intervention from the lifestyle we're supposed to have. Like somehow we're supposed to be poor people and it's cutting out something from like our essence. Like she, she understood that in the fact that the reply from heaven wasn't a normative way. Like he just happens to walk down the street and meet a guy who's looking for an, for an employee or happens to, you know, walk into a shop and get a lottery ticket and gets a hundred thousand dollars from the scratch off, which would be a normative. I mean, right. maybe right. most people don't win the lottery, but at least that's within the parameters. I feel like sometimes we, we we've all kind of won the lottery. I mean, our, our lives objectively are all pretty, pretty amazing. We tend to neglect these sort of heavenly winks and nods that come our way. The old joke about the, the, uh, the you know, the guy, the guy who's in the hurricane, he prays for help and, 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 and there's no help. And he says, heaven, you know, and then the guy comes by in a car, Hey, get in the car. No, I'm, I, no, God will save me. And then the guy's okay. And he drives away. Then the water starts coming up. And then, you know, a guy comes, comes by, you know, in a boat and he's like, Hey, hop in the boat. You know, you're going to drown. He goes, no, heaven will save me. And then finally a helicopter comes by. He's on the roof. 20 feet of water, and he goes, hey, hop in the helicopter. He goes, no, 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 heaven will save me. Guy dies, you know, goes upstairs, you know, and, God, and, and, he's, and he, God's like, what, what the heck, man? He's like, what do you mean? I thought you were going to save me. He goes, who do you think had the helicopter? <laughs> the boat, the car. Like, <laughs> that's how it works. We know that's how it works. God's speaking to us through our natural means, through the ways that we do things, and that's what prayer, we've talked about prayer before. Prayer is our way to connect to those normative, seemingly normative gifts that we have. You know, our intelligence, um, the way that we make money, these things are all coming from God. This was outside of that realm completely, and she picked up on that. Right, and because of that, she therefore assumes that this is going to diminish, you know, that's like a message, like why couldn't it have been a norm, you know, normative way of somehow finding money? So she understands that they're somehow reducing their spirituality. Now, like, why would that be the case? I mean, it's coming from heaven, the very place that you would be getting the reward. So I, this is conjecture, but this is, this is, as, as, this is the way I'm interpreting it, that... We generally assume blatant miracles to be uh, like an aberration from the way that the world is supposed to function. Miracles are not, we're not supposed to 
lead miraculous lives. We're not supposed to expect miracles to happen. In fact, the Talmud writes that a person shouldn't go in a dangerous place and like expect or hope that a miracle will save him. Like you're not supposed to have that attitude. Right. You're supposed to work within the parameters of the world we live in. That's the way the world is supposed to function. Which we can. This could be a full discussion for for another session. And it will be. And it will be hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And so the fact that it happened in, with with this non-normative way, she's like, it's like a message. This is not ideal. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Mm. So she picks up on like maybe this is not the way we're supposed we're supposed to be poor. And it's like if you want it, we'll give it to you. But we're sending you a signal that this isn't, you know, this isn't perhaps the life you should be leading. Right. And then. They go to Rabbi Hudanasi and have this conversation. And Rabbi Hudanasi says, I'll pick up the heat for it. And I'll pick up the tab for it. She's like, no, nothing doing. So uh, making this assumption, which we've just made, how do you then understand the next part of the conversation? So I'll share a thought with you from a, 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 one of the Muster greats who I don't think is that well known. There's a small book called Koch Ve'ar, The Stars That Give Off Light, is how it literally translates to, written by Rabbi Yitzchak Blazer, or Blazer, who was a student of... Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who was some call the founder of a, of a Musser movement, of this ethical movement in the European yeshivas to, to add more ethical teachings or other components to this movement. But in any case, he was an important figure, though not particularly well-known, uh, in this movement. So, so he, this movement takes place in the late 1800s? It started in the early 1800s. He lived from the mid to late 1800s. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, you, that's, that's his time frame. So he writes the following. He says... That one thing that's key to understanding what we'll call "quote unquote" heavenly reward is that it's not dependent on how much a person produces. Right? If you, if two people are given jobs at some sort of manual labor, and one of them is, uh, you know, weighs 110 pounds, and the other one weighs, you know, and is not very strong, and the other one weighs 250 pounds of muscle, and they both do the same work, they're going to get paid the same, even though for one of them it was a lot harder to do that work. Whereas when we talk about the value of spiritual behavior, if you studied a book and it was hard for you to do it, and for another person it was easy, you are, quote-unquote, have accomplished more and, quote-unquote, get more reward for the effort you've put in. There's an expression. The Bifum Tsara Agra. Exactly. Where does that expression come from? It's, in the it's from Avos. It's from Avos. So Lefum, according to the Tsar, the pain, the difficulty, is Agra, which means reward in Aramaic. And that's a really important sort of anti-Western idea, I think, which is important and one of the paramounts of Judaism that I picked up on on my journey that was so such a turn-on, which was going through, let's call it the, the American public school system, culminating in my acceptance to Penn, which was all about get good grades, get these marks, get good grades, get these marks, and it had nothing to do with the effort. Uh, in fact, you know, and, and I went through this pain also, which is go, even going through college and seeing people who were even cheating to get, you know, good grades, it went under their it went onto their grade books, whatever it was, under their whatever that thing is called. GPA. The GPA. And they got the job, whatever it was. And now okay, now they're working, whatever. But until then, nothing was about the effort. In fact, there was almost a de emphasis on effort. If it took it was hard for you, what are you what are you, some kind of some kind of idiot or something? And what is attractive about Judaism is I think this point that everybody's journey is different and the harder you work there has to be a payoff for that. And that, of course, is your spiritual reward. And it's, very, it's, it's, it's a tremendously freeing way to look at things, as opposed to saying, oh, success is something that is totally... Um, uh, um, totally objective. Objective. It, it isn't. In, and it's not. It's completely subjective. And what is objective is, is, is our morals, our values, that we don't cheat, that we're going to work hard. Those are things that are, that are attractive 
And I think that, that the Musser movement brought those things definitely to the front of the light. And for me, it was a huge turn. And this Gemara is sort of definitely dancing around that idea in a beautiful way. Right. So he continues with another idea. So he says, for instance, when you look at certain sins, so let's, you know, one example he, he lists is uh, sexual sins. So on the one hand, the Talmud writes, in tracting Makos, that every person desires, you know, there's, there's a strong lust for these types of misbehaviors. So that's factored in because people have a hard time controlling themselves. On the other hand, because there is a lot of enjoyment in sinning down that path, that's another factor. So everything has these complexities to it. You know, how much self-control does it demand? How hard is it for me to overcome it? On the other hand, if I enjoy it a lot and I know that it's wrong and I still do it, that's also factored. And so all these complexities, all these little nuances and subtleties are factored into not, you know, that isn't a yes or no question. It isn't first degree, second degree, third degree sin. You know, every person has all these little nuances and right. subtleties into right. it. And different personalities as well. Certain people have a harder time with certain things than others. Right. Not just because of, of intelligence, but pers- certain personalities have a harder time being empathetic. And, and inklings. People have different inklings. They feel certain. Right, exactly. So all these million and one components that make up each individual person are factored into his behavior. Now, so he uses this principle to explain Rabshamar Khalafta's wife's point. Again, we don't have her name, unfortunately, but we're still getting her idea in which she was victorious, so to speak, in her conversation with right. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Right. So he says the following. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi says, I'll cover that. If, in fact, you're right, that the fact that you got this in a miraculous means is a demonstration from heaven that this is somehow diminishing your position spiritually, I'll take the heat for it, if you're correct. She says, look, you, as you mentioned before, Rabbi Fox, are a wealthy person, talking to Rabbi Nasi. Your accomplishments in this world, your struggles, never entailed oh, the, you know, the pain of being impoverished. You were never a poor person. You don't know what that means. You, I'm sure I've had other issues, and being wealthy and being powerful is its own set of difficulties, but the set of difficulties that we have as poor people is something that you've never experienced. So she tells him that, quoting this, 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 uh, this teaching from King Solomon, that each person in, so to speak, the world to come is in their own world. The message she's sending to Rebbe is that you can't compensate for this particular issue we have. We're dealing with poverty. That's our struggle. And the fact that's our struggle is how we're going to be successful. You know, had heaven granted us a normative way to make money, then we'd assume that we no longer have to be poor. But apparently, it seems that we're supposed to struggle with this. This is supposed to be our struggle in this world. It's either going to be our mission here, how we're going to overcome something, or we can check out, take the checkout card, and that's going to cost me in the next world because I'm, I'm not getting that spiritual uplift and build that I need to create that world in the next world. Correct. And you, Rebbe, are in a different world. Your struggles aren't this struggle. How are you going to compensate for this particular struggle when you know nothing about it? It's like non-mathematically possible. Right. Rebbe, Rebbe Yudhanas, you're a great rabbi. You have all these accomplishments. You've done all this for the, for the Jewish community. And you're this incredible scholar. And these are all accomplishments that are going to be taken note of in heaven. But our issue is not something you relate to. You're in Olamo, you're in your world, not in our world. Right. You can't compensate for the uniqueness of our struggle. I'm understanding from heaven, perhaps this is our mission in this world. So you can't help us with this particular issue. Once again, the world to come is not like, it's, it's not money. It's not that they're going to hand us, 
you know, you can you can write us out a check. Right. <laughs> was it was it, I was joking with one of the students from 2019-ish about like his understanding of the next world and we were making a joke that like imagine a guy who, like doesn't get it. He's like, We're all in the next world and the guy keeps coming over to him being like, I got a great idea for a business. She's like, dude, we're in the next world. No, no, no. We're gonna buy up all this real estate, we're gonna flip it. Dude, I can have as much real estate as I, I can have whatever I want. I'm in the next world. The guy like just won't get it. Like there's no there's no monetary gain anywhere. It's, it's a hilarious idea. So there's a beautiful insight that she's teaching Rebbe. She's like, the world to come is in dollars. It isn't it isn't it isn't assets. Right. It's every person's unique personal struggle. And your struggle has nothing to do with our struggle. So how are you gonna fill in this gap? You can't do that. You literally cannot fill that and in. And did he not understand that or until she anecdotally explained it to him? Then he then he grasped. So, so, this is this is already my subjective understanding, which you can argue with. But the way I understand it is is you know, Rebbe says, look, you're a Torah, Torah scholar. You struggle. You you toiled in Torah study. I'm a Torah scholar. Also, I can fill in this gap. And as and Shemachalta's wife says, yeah, you're both scholars, and perhaps you're a greater scholar than my husband. But this nuance, this specific struggle that my husband has gone through, is something that you cannot compensate for. Right. It's like yeah, you know, you both are rabbis. You're both well-known figures and maybe you're a greater scholar and maybe maybe perhaps your spiritual accomplishments are even greater than my husband's. But at the end of the day, this is his unique this is his unique accomplishment that you don't have and you can't connect with this. So it's just it, it doesn't overlap like that. And that's something really for us to think about when it comes to empathizing and understanding A, what our personal mission, vision, struggles are. And then how we relate to other people, making sure that we're not overstepping those bounds, pretending like we understand, pretending like we can compensate for it when really we know that, that we can't or we should know that we can't. Amazing, amazing piece of Talmud. Yeah. Very, very powerful. Well, thank you for sharing that, Rabbi Beer. And thank you all for tuning in to another episode of So, What Does Judaism Say About? Until next time. 